People are yearning for information. Having the opportunity to encourage people and to educate people and inspire people. It's amazing to be able to say we'll carve out time to take care of ourselves. There's something for everyone. Dr. Sherry Walling is a clinical psychologist, speaker, podcaster, author, and mental health advocate. Her company, Zen Founder, helps entrepreneurs and leaders navigate transition, rapid growth, loss, conflict, or any manner of complex human experience. We're excited today to talk to Sherry about her new book, Touching Two Worlds, which explores new strategies for finding wholeness in the aftermath of loss. Welcome, Sherry. Trisha and I are thrilled you're with us today. It is so nice to be with you. Thank you for having me. Well, Trisha and I are so excited to talk about you and your new book. But before we begin, tell us a little bit about how you became a clinical psychologist and just a little bit about you. Oh, that's such a big question. I know. Thank, thank you for your curiosity <laughs> around it. There are a few kind of snapshot experiences that I think led me into my life as a clinical psychologist. And one of them happened um, when I was a junior in college and I was studying abroad in West Africa, Ghana. And I had the opportunity to work with a really cool organization that was helping street children who were living in the markets in Accra, which is in Ghana. And they were really working with these kiddos to try to give them a means to, you know, make money and start a vocation outside of working in the market or doing sex work or, you know, this kind of like street kid economy, which is not a really good economy for children to be in for many, many reasons. So we were doing all of this cool vocational training with these young people, but a lot of them would just kind of cyclically end up back in the street. And... In my conversations with them, I kept hearing these really core beliefs about themselves, like this sense of being trash, this sense of being somebody who belongs in this place, that this is their home and then this is their community. And so it just really rocked me, you know, myself as like a 20-year-old young woman to really see the power of one's beliefs about oneself and then also the way that we tell a story about where we belong and who our community is and how powerful that is in determining our life course. So that just made me super curious about psychology, right? I just wanted to understand how we can help tell better stories about ourselves that lead to more joyful, more healthy lives. I wish I could have done that better for these kiddos, you know, but that's become my lifelong curiosity. Which is so great. And you are also have a focus of working with entrepreneurs. I do. So I started in my work in the trauma and stress world, and I worked with people who had really high intensity jobs. So people coming out of the military, police officers, first responders, lots of physicians. So people who had lots of like life or death, high intensity stress in their work. While I was doing that work, I married an entrepreneur. I married a tech entrepreneur named Rob. We've been married for about 22 years. So basically my whole adult life, I've been hanging out with entrepreneurs and just hearing the stories of people who are trying to do really cool, amazing things in their life, but also struggling with identity, struggling with how to manage stress, how to have some separation from their business. So that's kind of become my vocation as I've taken what I know about high stress and high performance and applied that to the entrepreneurial world. And it's been a really, really interesting and satisfying career. That would be really interesting and kind of a real niche market, right? I mean, are there very many people doing that kind of work? There are a handful of us. Yeah, there are a few, but it's certainly not a well-established specialty. 
I do think that some of the conversation around mental health that has happened in the context of the COVID pandemic has really increased the level of interest around mental health in the business community, in the professional community. Certainly as employers have had to try to figure out how to support their employees through these major, major transitions, there's a lot more conversation happening now than there was five or 10 years ago, for sure, which is, sure. which is wonderful to see. But this book is a real pivot, right? The one that we're going to talk about today, Touching mm -hmm. Two Worlds. Can you tell us what it's about and what made you write this book? Yeah, so this book is about how to live in grief and how to live in joy at the same time. And it really is born from my own experience of having a string of significant losses very tightly close together. So I lost my father to esophageal cancer and then my brother to suicide six months apart from each other. I actually don't write about this very much in the book, but I also lost a daughter who was not my biological daughter, but lived with us for four years and was supposed to be my forever daughter. Uh, but she went back to live with her bio mom. So all of these happened in this really short period of time. And as I was you know, like awake at three in the morning trying to understand my life and what was happening and the heartbreak that I was experiencing. One of the things that I found myself doing was just writing. That was the thing that my mind, my body, my soul kind of wanted to do. And I wrote so much that I, you know, I had all this material. I had a book. So wow. it wasn't, um, it wasn't kind of in line with my business plan, you know, how you do a podcast or you do content that grows your business. And this is not unrelated, but it's certainly a heart project more than a, you know, this is pushing forward my agenda of my personal brand. Tell us about your dad and your brother. Can you tell us their stories? Sure. Yeah. My dad's name was Tim. I grew up in Northern California. So my dad and brother, my brother's name is Dave. They both just loved the outdoors. Some of my favorite experiences of them are being at the lake, we would, oh. my dad was super organized. So we'd get up like really early on a Saturday morning because he really wanted this very specific spot at the lake. So <laughs> he'd have this whole system for packing the beach bag and packing the van and getting the raft and the dog and all of the things in the van to get the whole family to the spot <laughs> by, you know, 8 a.m. to make sure that we got the spot. But then we would just spend the whole day and linger as a family on Saturdays. Those are sort of my favorite experiences of my growing up years with my dad and my brother. So your book is about death, but it's also a love story, really. And I can hear it in your description of your dad and your brother. Can you explain a little bit about that? I think as a clinical psychologist, I came to my work with an understanding of the diagnostic problems of grief or trauma, you know, all of the things that sort of go wrong that we treat as a therapist. And it wasn't until I went so deep into my own grief that I really understood the relationship between grief and love. And that grief exists and is powerful and forceful because love is so powerful and forceful. So that really was a huge shift for me in not seeing grief so much as like a problem to be solved or a pathology to be tended, but as this other phase of love that is part of, you know, a really, really important human connection. We fear death so much, but death is really a part of life. How do we change that in our culture where it sounds like you focus on your experiences as love and as an important part of living? How do we get away from the fear? 
I really wish we were better about this in our culture. You know, the experience of being close with someone who is dying is profound. And as I sat with my dad while he was dying, I had that sense of this sort of sacred hush, right? Like, I'm not going to do this very many times in my life. It was very similar for me to how I felt when I gave birth to my children. Like, this is a one or two time experience, you know, again, for me. And I, I want to be really present. It's really important. Death is not popular, right? The limits of our life and the finite nature of our life and our choices, it's not sexy. It's not what people want to talk about. Certainly not the people that I work with. The movers and shakers and entrepreneurs of the world are super uncomfortable with death. But I think there's deep importance in redeeming death as an important part of life, in redeeming our capacity as humans to be present with someone who's dying, to be able to be supportive and to hold that space. So how we get over the fear of death, I think, does require familiarity, like how we get over fear of anything else. We, we get closer to it. We learn about it. We touch it. We are present with it. We are more open about talking about it, about exploring it, reading about it. It's the unknown of it that brings so much fear. As we get older, we experience it. Everyone experiences it. So not that it makes it any easier the more times you experience it, but it does become more prevalent as you get older. You're experiencing death at a much faster and more frequent pace. That phase of life where you go to weddings and you have a wedding every other weekend in the summer. Yes. And then there's the phase of life where it's like baby showers. And then, you know, the high school graduations of your friend's children. And then there's a phase of life of funerals. So I think you're absolutely right that it is something that we get more acquainted with over the course of life. But, you know, I think you bring up such a good point when you talk about that grief and joy actually can be simultaneous. It's, I think, the thing that might shock people as they enter into grief, right? I mean, it's weird, but you can actually feel joy. Can you talk about that? And I think what you were describing when you're saying, I'm with my dad, I'm present with my dad, my dad's leaving and I'm here and that's joyful in the heart. But how can you describe it to people? For me, this experience of deep grief has been really learning how to shift quite quickly and fluidly through the different pieces of my life. Because as a mother raising young children, I'm in this world of like, what's being born, what's being created, what's being made. It's the world of people who are beginning their lives. Mm -hmm. And in me, as their mother, they need joyfulness, playfulness, some structure, you know, energy. And so I've needed to be that person for them and then sometimes shift very quickly into the stillness, sadness of being present for somebody whose life is unraveling and ending. It can feel like emotional whiplash, but it also feels balanced and whole and important to know that I can do that. And I think that's a message around grief. That's really the point of the book that I want to be able to offer others because I think so many of us fear grief. We fear getting close to it. We fear being in it because we think we're going to get stuck or we think we'll live in that depression and darkness forever. And of course, that's not true, but being able to be quite fluid in going back and forth between the world of the living and the world of the dead, you know, is an option that's available to us that I think is really powerful. You mentioned kids. How do you talk to kids about death? I've thought a lot about this, of course. 
you know, one of the things that is, I think, quite challenging about this for my story is that talking to children about cancer and talking to children about suicide are very different things. When my dad was diagnosed with esophageal cancer, he actually came to live with our family for a short period of time. He was doing some evaluation and treatment planning at Mayo Clinic. And so for this period, my children, who at the time were 11, 8, and 8, they had this sort of front row seat to this whole experience. So we talked very openly about cancer and what happens when cells multiply too quickly and create tumors and it kind of clogs the functioning of the body and they exist in different places. So it was a very simple relatively childlike explanation, but I really wanted them to have information. And as soon as it was clear that my dad's diagnosis was very serious, I told them very openly, this will probably be how grandpa dies. Like, there's no need to keep anyone in mystery. There's no need for my children to be afraid that grandpa will die. I would much rather tell them, it looks very likely that this will be how grandpa dies. I think talking to kids is so much like helping them understand and grasp what is graspable for them and then eliminating as much mystery as possible. And I think with children, sometimes we end up being very vague because we don't want to overburden them. But I think the vagueness actually becomes more of a burden because they're working so hard yeah. to try to figure out what's happening. Keeping people in the dark is much worse. And you were saying the difference between that cancer and then somebody committing suicide is a whole different approach. So how did you handle that? Suicide is tricky. It's tricky because, you know, there's not a diagram that you can draw, right? I can draw cancer. I can't really draw suicide. The sort of black and white linear logic of children is such that if the cells reproduce too fast, they make a tumor and it clogs the body and, you know, that's bad. But with suicide, it's sort of like how much sadness is too much sadness? How much alcohol must someone drink before they could die? So there's not a very black and white logical way to talk to children about how someone dies by suicide. And so in that case, we didn't talk so much about the mechanism of death. We talked a lot about the person that my brother was. He had a really great relationship with my children, which we spent a lot of time talking about after he died. That is a place where it was a little bit more vague than I wish it was. But to say, you know, Uncle Dave really wanted to stay with you as long as he could. He really loved playing with you. He loved being with you. And I know he's sad that he couldn't stay longer. Was that a journey or was it a surprise to everybody that he committed suicide or how did that go? In many ways, my brother had a parallel process to my dad. In my brother's story was some depression, was some addiction. But when my dad was diagnosed, he really imploded and kind of went on this crash course toward his own ending on a very similar kind of timeline to my dad. Wow. As a psychologist, stepping back, putting on my researcher detached objective hat, that's quite common. I mean, death in your life is a risk factor for suicide. I guess, I mean, maybe a slightly dramatic, but I don't think inaccurate way to say it is that grief itself can be deadly. Grief can so overwhelm one's system. Right. So when my dad was um, originally diagnosed and it was clear the cancer was very serious, my brother had an incident of alcohol abuse that landed him in the ICU for a week, was, you know, basically almost drank himself to death and then went to treatment and recovered and did really well. But then my dad was diagnosed with brain cancer. The cancer moved to his brain and he declined again. And it was, you know, it, then he just got really sick, 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 sick. 
And so my brother observed that, and then shortly after, he had his first suicide attempt. So every time that my dad's illness became much more severe, my brother struggled. And so we did have some sense. We did know he wasn't well, that he wasn't bouncing back from these challenges. In many cases, in my story, and, and certainly happens for lots of families, it's almost after someone seems like they are putting the pieces back together that they die. So my brother had just graduated from treatment, was doing very well, had just returned to Montana, a place that he loved and lived for many years. Although I knew he was ill, he was in this very hopeful place. And so the shock was still very, very it's present. still obviously always there. Wow. And so that's your father and your brother who passed, you said, within six months of each other. Mm-hmm. Six months to the day. I imagine in circumstances... I can speak for myself when I've lost somebody that I love, there can be regret. You wish you'd said this, or you wish you'd done that, or how do you deal with that? I'm glad you asked me that because it's really the question that a lot of us wrestle with. The book actually was originally titled 10,000 Moments <laughs> because that was my reflection on sort of how this happened. It was 10,000 moments of heartbreak. It was 10,000 small experiences that cumulatively came together for this outcome, for my brother specifically. Almost immediately after he died, I think I started doing the math of what could I have done differently? How could I have intervened? What could I have said? How could I have been supportive? What could I have done to bring about a different outcome? The reality is that there were, of course, moments that I could have handled better, that everybody could have handled better. But there were also so many moments when I loved him perfectly. And one of the gifts of this story for me, and it's certainly not true of every story like this, but this is one that was given to me, is that the last thing that I said to him was, I love you. I said it on the phone a couple of days before he died. So there are lots of regrets, but there are also lots of moments of recognizing the love that existed between us. And I think I'm slightly over, you know, it's sort of like 65% my judgment of myself is I loved him well. Then there's this other percentage that's messier and darker, but it's definitely been a process of kind of coming to peace and forgiveness of myself for things that I didn't do that were perfect, you know, ways that I wasn't perfect. And, you know, we often talk about the timeline of grief and the different stages of grief and things, but you indicate this too, that time doesn't heal. Healing takes time kind of idea, right? Are you ever really over it? And as you start talking about grief, because now, as you said, there's all kinds of studies now that are showing that grief is real. I mean, it shows up in the body, almost diagnosable, right? Or is it diagnosable? There are several um, diagnoses that are related to grief. They usually are considered to be outside the normal grieving there okay. when grief lasts too long. But you're saying sometimes you don't really get over grief. How does it work or how do you learn to live with it? Does it become something else in you or how's that work? I would use that language. Like I don't think you heal from grief. I think it's a different shape of love that takes a place in your heart and mind and soul. And there are waves of it. There is different intensities to it. You know, many people certainly right away feel this big disruption in their bodies, have difficulty sleeping, have difficulty thinking about or doing anything else. I mean, it's the loudest voice in their mind for a time. And that eases, the intensity eases. I feel like I've gone on a journey to a place, like I've gone to London 
And I visited London now. I now I know what London is like, and I will always have memories of London and this experience of London. And, and grief is sort of like that. It will always be part of me. It's integrated into me now. As we say, grief is maybe integrated, but in some ways, unless your story changes, the loss can get stronger and stronger and stronger. And if you know what I'm saying, so say you lose somebody, for example, I'll talk about myself personally. So my husband passed away from pancreatic cancer and I have four children. And interesting enough, six months later, my father died to the day. And I heard you say your brother died to the day. So we really feel my father died of totally the grief. It's fascinating that as we go further and further in our journeys, it does mold in, but at times it takes on another life of its own. And in my case, I'm in a different phase of life. So I'm having grandchildren now, a life that I thought I'd have with my husband. So there's a morning of that. As I dig deeper into it and look at it, that again is just another way that love is expressed. And I get that, but it hurts again in a way that you didn't expect it to. Grief is complicated and grief is real. And it's so awesome that you're writing that. I wrote a book about this. In my experience, it is always there. And oftentimes it hurts again. And all of a sudden I'm grieving again and it doesn't seem to make sense, but it's another probably identity that I'm losing. It's about me really, right? I mean, it's about us. It's my identity. Or it's that awareness of that emptiness right then. I mean, my son will graduate from high school in a year and- the idea that my dad won't be there. Yeah. It's like, what? The world, is, like, that's just not the math of the world. Like, that's right. how it's supposed to be. Right. He's supposed right. to be there, like, obnoxiously right. in, with, you know, in the crowd. Right. Like, I can totally imagine him there. Yeah, it's sort of like that. I hope this book gives that sense of reverence for it, a respect for the process, this acknowledgement that it is, it's mighty and powerful and not pathological it kind of has a mind of its own, but if you look for it, if you listen to it, if you interact with it, it can be a teacher and a deepener, even as it's painful. What are some of the things we can do when we're experiencing grief to help ourselves? And then if you could touch on how we can help others, because I know people struggle with, you know, when Trisha was going through her terrible times, I would struggle with, oh, what could I do that could support her or that could support her kids or that kind of thing? Some of the things that are really helpful are kind of a counterbalance to loss. So if loss is emptiness, something that's helpful is creativity or generativity. So one of the things that I've started doing since these losses is I just make a garden. So I have a garden now. I didn't have a garden before, but it feels so good to have my hands in the dirt and to watch my little plants take on a life. So it gives me something to do that I don't have to talk about. It doesn't require a lot of emotional language. I don't have to show up in a professional way, but it's motion and it's creation of something. It's not cerebral. It's not cognitive. It's not intellectual. It's physical and it's nurturing of life. One of the other things that was super, super helpful to me was really physical practices. This may surprise you, but I became a circus artist during my season of grief wow. um, and learned the flying trapeze and aerial fabrics because wow. I really needed to get, get in my into body. your body. Yeah. Yep. So big body expression. And that can be hiking, it can be biking, it could be canoeing, it can be anything. But moving out of stillness into motion, I think is really powerful. And that's a great way to be in support to someone who's grieving too, is to tend to the body 
where you can. The practice of bringing food. My mom's Bible study was amazing at this for her and her grief, like just stock in the fridge with casseroles. <laughs> you know, my generation isn't much of a casserole generation, <laughs> but the presence of food and just practical help is of course a tremendous gift. Invitation to movement, to walk, to get out of the house and just do something that doesn't require thought or discussion. But then also the gift of really asking about the person who was lost. It's such a funny thing, but sometimes people feel so uncomfortable about saying, tell me about your husband, tell me about your father. It's sort of like they think they're going to remind me that they're dead, as if I've forgotten. (laughs) But sometimes when someone says, do you want to tell me a story about your brother, Dave? Oh, what a gift. That kind of invitation is really a gift. Well, I think that's really good advice. Because as Dora said, even people that have lost people and other people are losing people, sometimes you don't know what to do and you don't know what to say. The other day I was at my mother's where she lives, which is a senior citizen's place. And my father passed away, as I mentioned. And the neighbors that are like right next door to my mom, we started talking and it was so sweet. Miriam, the woman turned to me and she said, you know, we never met your dad do you have a few minutes to tell us about him? And I'm like, really? It was, I I couldn't believe it. And I was so excited to talk about my dad. I went in and got pictures, which I can't believe I did that, but she was really interested and it was just felt so good. So I think that's true. People love to talk about the people that they love. Yeah. And it's such a gift to listen. If someone's grieving, I I just think listening is the best gift you can give. One of the things that Trisha is good at is marking sort of grief anniversaries. And Trisha always does something special with her kids on the day that Danny died. They call it his death day. I mean, it's kind of, we, we do call it, oh, that, well, that's dad's death day. So we need to do this on dad's death day. <laughs> yep. And it's our language in our, in us. Well, gosh, family okay, language. Well, yeah, family. it's dad's death day. And it's interesting now. And it is termed that way for us. And we do And then you it. play golf because Danny loved golf yep, or yep. something. We'll like have that. his favorite food for dinner. We eat cherry pie for breakfast on oh, dad's <laughs> death day. Oh. Cherry pie was, <laughs> that's well, so you sweet. Know, as he was really, really ill, it's one of the last things that he could eat as oh. the cancer was really taking over his body. It was yeah, sort of like the last deal. thing that tasted good. Yeah. So in particular on death day, we're like, okay, we're just <laughs> eating cherry pie today. <laughs> That's so fun. So it is important to mark these anniversaries, right? One of the things that I do is <laughs> I watch my dad's funeral on TV and I cry my eyes out every time Aww, yeah. and just sit there and watch it. But I imagine that there are people who just sort of want to put it in a box and not go there. What do you say to them? I think it's very helpful to have the rituals. And so making a plan and putting it on the calendar I think is really helpful. Again, people get a little bit afraid that they're going to get stuck in the lostness and the sadness. But if you know it's coming and you can kind of like schedule it, like I'm going to spend two hours on this Saturday afternoon thinking about the loss of my dad. So looking at photos or watching videos, going for a walk, doing the kinds of things that we're talking about. It's more work psychologically. It's more work for your body to try to repress and contain and ignore and defend against those feelings than it is to create a little bit of structure and creativity around opening up a time for crying and feeling and grieving. 
And then having a ritual to, again, move through, move back to the other world. We're sort of shifting back and forth between these worlds. And that's the practice that's available to us. One of the things that I read, your book comes out in July, but one of the things you address in the book is how to cry in public. What is that? <laughs> so in the season of these deaths, I live in Minneapolis. My parents are from California and my brother was living in Montana. I was in airplanes all the time, just sort of flying back and forth between places. I would find that I would get in the airplane and, you know, after the hustle and bustle of being in the airport and packing and prepping and blah, 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 finally I sit down in my seat and I'm like, I'm still and there's nothing really to, you know, I can watch movies, but like, I'm just still, I'm stuck here in this seat for this time. And I would almost always cry. I actually wrote a lot of the book in the airplane crying while flying back and forth across the country. And so I had to get sort of good and skilled at, okay, I know the emotion is coming. Like I know the context is such that I will feel so tender. So I started wearing like either a sweatshirt with a hood or some kind of scarf or something I could just sort of pull <laughs> around my face to just give me a little more privacy. I would plan ahead and, you know, fill my pockets with Kleenex. Like I just kind of knew this is what's going to happen. And I could stress about it or fight it or pretend it's not going to happen. Or I can just, again, sort of make a plan and give it space. That happens to me when I talk about my dad and mm -hmm. I have to do it in public. And mm -hmm. I, then I start bawling. <laughs> wow. Yeah. What, what? I guess you just go with it and just apologize or what do you do? I think it's helpful to just to call it out if you're pretty sure it's going to happen <laughs> to say to people, you know what? This is about I cry. to happen. Every time I talk about this, I cry. I'm okay with that. I'm comfortable with that. That's part of this story for me. So, you know, I just want you to know <laughs> it's probably going to happen and we'll just be okay with that together. When you're dealing with the death of a loved one, it can trigger thoughts about your own mortality. How do you deal with that anxiety that comes up? I know in Trisha's case, she has four children and she has to really take care of herself because she's got a double responsibility now that Danny's gone. And I can imagine for Trisha and other people how that would cause anxiety. It's very common and I think it's an important part of grief. I think about what are the meaningful actions that I can take around this anxiety in my own fear about my own death or my own mortality and sort of like Trisha, the experience of what, what would it be like if I left my children? What would that be like for them? There are meaningful actions that I can take around that. So I will say I've gotten like really, really careful with all of my pre-cancer screening checkups, <laughs> you know, an endoscopy and a coloscopy and all of the things that are meaningful actions that I can do to try to take as much care as I can. But that's the other part of death is that there are so many things that are absolutely outside of our control. My dad died of esophageal cancer, never drank, wasn't a smoker, like didn't have the risk factors that would predict his vulnerability to that particular cancer. So I think also there must be a reverence for the fact that we just can't control it. The meaningful actions we can take are toward our own health and towards the management of our own relationships, that if some unforeseen and terrible thing happens, that we know that we have done our best to leave a legacy of love and support as much as we can is within our power. And then, man, I feel like we have to just kind of let it go because you can't cling too tightly to your perception, your perceived need to control to stay because you just don't get to make those decisions. And you're doing lots of work in the psychedelic world. Can you talk to us about that? Because of course, that's something we're really curious about. 
you know, psychedelics are a pretty powerful healing tool, particularly for grief. We're seeing a lot of the research focus on the role that MDMA-supported psychotherapy can play in helping people work through trauma. And then, you know, psilocybin, for example, extraordinarily helpful in people experiencing depression. The research literature is just like blowing up with this right now. So these medicines are not yet legally used in therapy, but we're in the very final phases of FDA approval. So I think we will see them rolled out. They'll probably be legalized in the next year to 18 months, and then we'll see them rolled out in the coming time. But because of my interest in this work and some connections that I had, I was able to do some early work in this way and worked with a clinician to do some MDMA therapy which was incredibly focused on my dad's death. So in the session, I returned to the memory of the moment that my dad died. But in the therapy session, I was sort of like hovering above the scene. And I was watching myself sit with my dad in his bed, kind of be present with him as he was leaving the world. In real life, quote unquote, when it happened the first time, you know, it all happened exactly as I remembered it, but I was very focused on my dad's experience, on easing his pain, on ushering him in. And then I was very focused on my mom's experience and my brother's and just kind of like being the oldest daughter, making sure everyone was okay. But then with MDMA supported therapy, I had a moment or the experience of really seeing myself as this daughter who was losing her father. And I was able to kind of cry for myself with this deep empathy of what that felt like without all of the responsibility and the things to do and the ways that I was trying to be helpful and all, you know, kind of the, all of the cognitive stuff. And that ability to be very empathetic and tender with myself about my own grief was very important and very healing. So you were able to do it and use it as a tool for your own grief because as you mentioned, or we talk about is if it doesn't go out, it's going to find a place in your body and will eventually cause a dis-ease. So what you're saying is that this is sort of a mechanism, a supported mechanism that helps move this through in a healthy way for that person that's grieving. Wow. And that these interventions are so neat because they are biochemical, right? It is a physiological body experience, but it's also in the presence of really supported therapy. So with really well-trained clinicians, you're sort of getting the best of both worlds in mental health. You're getting a body-based intervention and then a really lovely, warm, supportive environment to explore these really tender experiences. Oh, I think it's so amazing how recently it's really becoming, as you said, it could be mainstream in a year to 18 months. And I am so glad, mostly because I think we're all kind of desperate for some new tools in mental health care. I mean, my brother went to treatment center and treatment center and did all of the sort of traditional psychiatric medicines, which I am not against. They have served people well for many years, but he never found the thing that really supported him. And I don't know, I can't say for sure that these kinds of interventions would have been a game changer, but there's a substance called Ibogaine, which is the active part of a root called Iboga, which looks to be extraordinarily efficient at eliminating alcohol addiction and opioid addiction. Some of the most difficult to treat problems that exist can be alleviated relatively quickly. It's not easy treatment. It's like, let's face all of your trauma. So it's not fun. but it's powerful. I'm very excited and hopeful that we'll see some new tools that can be available to people who are really suffering. 
with psychedelics, are you going to pursue a license or how does that work? Some of that is still to be determined. Ketamine is one medication that is legal to use in a therapeutic setting currently. So I've done some training in that and, you know, can use that. I'm a PhD, not an MD. So an MD will have to prescribe the medicine, but my training allows me to then sit with someone therapeutically while they're using ketamine. And then I've also trained with MAPS, which is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, which is rolling out most of the training for clinicians in this world. What it will look like to actually implement is a little bit to be determined, but probably it will involve a physician making a prescription and then the medication is taken in the presence of a therapist. So I'm already as far down the path to be approved to do it as possible at this point until it's legalized. That's great. It's so great. So how can people find you? I know you have a podcast. Tell us how people can find you. My book is called Touching Two Worlds, and it lives at touchingtwoworlds.com. We did a circus show about the book that um, you'll see some pictures of on the website. And then I'm at sherrywalling.com and also, you know, on Instagram and Twitter at Sherry Walling and LinkedIn. I don't know. I'm very easy to find on the internet. (laughs) Well, we've so enjoyed visiting with you. We're excited about your book. It's such an important topic. And we just thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you for joining us on Health Gig. We loved having you with us. We hope you'll tune in again next week. In the meantime, be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast and follow us on healthgigpod.com. I'm Trisha. And I'm Doro. Be well.